and he said, oh, he's some French guy. I said, well, look at this music you wrote. You know. And we looked at it, and we made a quick exit down to the bank cafe and had a double scotch each. And I came back, and I sat down, and I said, uh, pardon me, Mr. Legrand, but uh, I said, are you sure that this is what you want from the trombones? I said, this stuff is impossible to play. And he said, yes, I know, that's why we hired you. <laughs> so, <laughs> and he said, it's so nice, man, that I said, okay, you know, and uh, so we split that whole part up. I don't know if you can tell it on the record, but some feeling writing here. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It, was, it was terrific. That one tune, uh, Rosetta, you know, was, right. was uh, we did that at about 2 o'clock in the morning, you know, I remember <laughs> looking at those old B-flats and saying, man, I hope we get through this, and we did. But it was fun to do, you know, it was a real challenge. So... Uh, that was one, and then there was uh, oh, a whole series of dates that I did with uh, Miles and Gil Evans, which were really one of the high points in my... Did, now, did Miles actually hire you, or was it uh, Evans, or how did you make well, that contact? Uh, Gil called me for the first album, which was Miles Ahead, or well, Miles Plus 19, I don't know, it's known by various names, but, but Gil called me for that, and... Uh, I don't know how how we first became acquainted, but I, I just always, have always regarded him as as a teacher. You know, and, uh, every time I talk with him or every time I uh, play for him or with him, it's like taking a lesson. And uh, I did that album first, and I walked out of the studio and I said, "Boy, this is something really new," you know, and I was really impressed by the music and. You know, you have to realize that you're doing uh, Winston Tastes Good like a cigarette should, you know, and you're doing uh, In My Merry Oldsmobile, and you're doing all of these different, you know, dates that make your livelihood, but you're not playing a lot of music. And then you come and walk into something like that, and boy, it's just so refreshing, and you know, so real, and so musical, and so everything nice, and everything that you uh, wanted to be when you were a kid, you know, and said, wow, this is, this is what music is all about. So that I walked out of that first date and I knew that we had something new by the tail, you know, it was just, just such a, a great sound. And he called me to do Corgi and Bess again. And of course, I, you know, I was very eager to do it. We did it. Then uh, he called me to do Sketches of Spain, it was the third album in that series. And I was hooked up to my ears with rock and roll dates and, you know, just commercial stuff. And of course, you can't just call up a, a contractor and say, you know, that date we have, uh, you know, next Tuesday, the one that I took, I can't take it, you know, get somebody else, because uh, you're done with that contractor, or you're done with, uh, with him at least for the year or the next six months, or until you can make it up to him or something, you know. So, uh, all of the dates for Sketches of Spain were booked up. Uh, I, I was already booked for something else, you know, and I could make an hour of one and an hour and a half of another one. And I told Gil, I said, listen, I can do an hour of this one, an hour and a half of the next one. And he said, you know my music. He said, I can't do stuff. I can't do it that way. He said, I'll just have to get somebody else. And I said, well, you know, it's just, it'll just be too expensive for me to, to take off as much as I want to do it. So. Long about three o'clock in the morning that night, I get a call. His voice says, "Hey, mother, what are you doing to me?" You know, and it was Miles, and 
Miles and I had gotten along very well. We were, we were good friends. And uh, I said, man, there's no way I can do these dates. And he said, listen, I'll give you double money. I'll give you, you know, whatever whatever you need. And I said, it's not even that. I said, I'm committed to some other dates. And I'm booked for them. And I said, there's nothing I can, you know, it would be bad for me to, to cancel out on you. And we haggled and haggled for about 15 minutes. And, and uh, he called me several different kinds of names. <laughs> and uh, there was nothing I could do, you know. It was one of those things. So he said, well, when are you free? And I said, well, you know, I'm free from 2 to 5 on Tuesday and 6 in the morning until 9 on Thursday and whatever, whatever. Sunday morning, I think, was Monday. And uh, so he said, okay, I'll get back to you in the morning. This is like 3.30 in the morning by now. So about 7 o'clock, K.O. Macero called me up and he said, what do you got on Miles Davis? <laughs> and I said, why? He said, he just called me. He said, he got me out of bed and he uh, he wants to change all these dates around. He said, he flatly refuses to do the album unless you're on it. So I said, terrific. <laughs> so so uh, uh, that's what happened. He said, that you were playing lead on the date, one two? and three. Yeah, I was playing most of the most, most of lead. I'm sure I was playing probably all of it, yeah. And, uh, but you know, Gil would, Gil would write things for players. He never wrote for a first drama owner or a second right. drama owner. He wrote for Johnny Coles, and he wrote for Ernie Royal, and he wrote for Louis Lucci, and he wrote for uh, Joe Bennett, and Joe Bennett was on the date, or he wrote for Cleveland, or whoever was doing the date, you know. And he, and he had that particular person's, it was like Duke Ellington's band, you know, Duke used to do the same thing. So, anyway, they changed all these dates around so that I could do them. And, uh, and T.O. said, man, I've got 30 guys here, I've got the engineer, I've got the studio, I've got, you know, and he was a little bit upset, but, but I ended up doing sketches in Spain, and I was never so happy when I walked out of the studio and finished that album. Because I said, boy, if I would have missed that, I would have hung up my horn. I would have been so mad that, it, that I it a great didn't dates. do it, you know, because that was, became a classic album, you know, and I still get a kick out of listening to it. Now, you were one of the few trombone players after J.J. that Miles used in a small group. Uh, I guess there's that one recording out with Bob Doro, um, Blue Christmas or something like that, that you're, it, you, oh. you, you play on it. Yeah. And did, did you play much with a small group of Miles? Not a lot, no, but we did one one big show for CBS uh, with John Coltrane and Miles and myself and a rhythm section. Uh, that was part of Gil Evans. Mm -hmm. It was part of Gil Evans' big band. We were the small group within the band. Uh, and it was, I think, called the Seven Lively Arts or something like that. I think that's what it was. But, uh, Would you rehearse much with Miles, or you just go and do it? Uh, we rehearsed for that, yeah. Not, not a lot. Where would you rehearse? In the studio or at Miles' yeah, place? Yeah, no, usually at the studio. But I spent quite a bit of time with Miles and with Gil. Uh, uh, Miles and I became quite good friends. I was married to Jerry Gray at the time, uh, who was Wardell Gray's widow. And uh, she was good friends with Miles, and in fact, she was Miles' wife's best friend. So, so the four of us used to spend time together, and uh, and there was always something great going on in his house. And it was, 
he loved to cook and he loved to, loved to entertain, so there was always some kind of a big bash going on. Over and he kept in touch with Miles? And I haven't, but he's going to be down in Houston uh, in February next month. You know, I'm planning on seeing him then. I talked to him a few years ago, but not, not lately at all. So, so it'll be a kick to see him again. How did the, for trombone players, that roof state, the Three Bones and the Quill, with Gene Quill and Jimmy Dahl, Jimmy Cleveland and yourself, is kind of a classic for trombone players. It's just a wonderful day. How did that come about? Three trombones, sax, and rhythm is kind of an unusual combination for a date. Whose idea was it? Well, I think it was Johnny Richards' idea. Because you were all playing with the band. We were all with his band at the time, yeah. We used to feature the yeah. bones, like in Cimarron, that one yeah. thing. Is the bones just play with rhythm, yeah. three bones. Right. We, yeah, we did. I think it was John's idea. I'm, I'm not really certain how it came about, but we were, you know, certainly all together all the time. And I love to play with Gene Quill. He was, you know, he was a great saxophone player. And, uh, and he, to, you know, he had to be messed up his, his life. Was, was yeah. He had difficult uh, oh, yeah. time. He lost his cabaret card and couldn't work. Yeah. Yeah, I know. He was... Well, he's, he's in bad shape now, I understand, but, but uh, in fact, I got a letter from him or from somebody that wrote it for him just well, about a year ago or so, and uh, he's, he's not doing very well, but, but uh, again, that's another story now. I think that Johnny Richards was the guy that gave us the idea to do that album, and I don't remember a great deal about how it how it actually it's came about, album but, but it was terrific, yeah, I remember it was so Well, this takes to us do. to the end of the 50s, and uh, yeah. you were still playing in New York through the 60s, but not much was heard of you, certainly not on, on records, what was happening? Well, I was in the studios for a while, and then I, I opened the music store for around 1961, something like that. I opened the music store on 53rd Street and Broadway, and I was working was it called? at CBS, it was called Music Unlimited. And uh, I turned right around and I began using heroin again. And uh, so my decline was, <laughs> was pretty swift. Uh, it didn't take long for the word to get around again that I was, I was uh, messing up. And I lost my job at CBS. Uh, because of the talk or were you not showing up for yeah. dates? Or? Well, a combination of everything. Yeah, I was not How was your playing? Well, you know, when you use heroin, playing is totally secondary. You, you, your connection becomes your dearest friend, and your horn becomes just another way to get a few bucks, you know, and if you have to hawk it, eventually you do that. So it's not a, a very pleasant thing. But, but uh, you know, your whole life revolves around getting your next fix. And, and that's what happened to me, you know. It didn't happen in one day, but over a period of about a year, I became, uh, you know, totally undependable. People would rather hire a dependable guy that they knew was going to show up and it didn't play quite as well, you know, or maybe maybe just as well. Rather, you ended up playing some Broadway shows too, didn't you? I did some Broadway shows. I did a lot of a lot of different stuff, and I was still doing some recording. But in general, my life was starting to to take a to turn downhill again. By 1963, I was, I was not, uh, you know, I was, I was employable, but I was not doing well at all. It started, it started just 
all falling apart again. And uh, by 1969, I was I was on my last legs. I had I had completely uh, ended up almost not playing at all. Uh, where I would borrow borrow a horn to play a job and. Oh, and, you know, was I was selling newspapers. I had a newspaper delivery route. I mean, I was at that point. So. It was in 1969 on the tour at Woody Herman that uh, he tried to send you off to Sindanam. You know? Yeah. You were at Sindanam from 1969 till when? Oh, I'm still, still involved. Why don't you talk a little yeah. uh, What did uh, Sindanam do for you? Uh, well, in 1969, uh, I was out on a tour with Woody and Dion Warwick. Just worse and worse. I, uh, I was telling somebody the other day, uh, as a, tr a trumpet player in New York, when I got, had this opportunity to go out with Woody Herman, I was in such bad shape that I had to borrow a pair of shoes from him, and, uh, from this trumpet player. And a couple of weeks ago, I sent him a pair of fine leather boots from Texas. <laughs> this is better late than never. This is, this is like 15 years later, you know. And this guy just got a letter for me. He couldn't believe it, man, that he got these boots, you know. So I said, well, I owe you a pair of shoes and a pair of boots. So, uh, anyway, I was just getting totally ridiculous, you know, to the point where Ira Nepis, my friend, the other trombone player on the band, was uh, putting my clothes on for me and tying my tie and putting my jacket on and, and then propping me up in the chair. How did you play? And uh, oh, I could barely play, you know. I was, I was, as long as I sat down, I could move the slides and all that, but I was, I was just getting worse and worse by the minute. And, and it was very obvious that I was not long for this world. I weighed, I don't know, 120 or 125, and I was, I was a wreck. And uh, one night, I just collapsed on a bandstand. I fell off my chair and I was lying on the ground. And, and, uh, you know, I like to tell a story, I don't, I don't recall the exact words she said, but Dion said something about, you know, there being a lot of garbage on the bandstand, and why don't we get rid of some of it, and she was pointing at me, and, and uh, so I realized that something was radically wrong with me, you know, that I had gone through this whole procedure once before, and had beat it, and, and had become well-known, and wealthy, and all that, and, and here I was in the same position again, you know, insane of me. And uh, I talked with Woody and he said, well, it's, you know, I can't carry, I can't carry a dead man on the band. You know, so you have to get yourself together. He said, you have to go to Sinanon? Or he said, I have to leave you here. He said, I can't take it. I can't take you with me anymore. So he helped me get to Sinanon that night. Fact, right after work that night, he had a couple of guys take me out to the airport. And Ira Nepis called his father, who was affiliated with Sinanon out in Santa Monica, California. And uh, they picked me up, uh, put me on a plane, and, and the father picked me up. Uh, uh, <laughs> there were a series of wild uh, circumstances surrounding that, you know, where I, I got so out of my mind on the plane that I was circling around at about 80,000 feet, and the plane had landed already. and. Uh, Poor old Savanibus, the father, didn't know where I was, and, uh, and I finally emerged from the plane, and you know, like I looked like some kind of a gorilla or something. I was on all fours and babbling, coughing in the mouth. And I was, I was just crazy. And 
caused the scene at the airport and uh, had the cops after me and, you know, he finally got me to the car and, uh, I don't want to go through all of that. But once that's in there, once you, you became but, a little bit more stable, um, did the trombone enter in immediately or were there other musicians that encouraged you or were able to help uh, you? Well, there used to be an unwritten, you know, Cinnamon has very few rules, but there was always a, a, a thing at Cinnamon that if a musician came in, uh, not to let him play right away because they felt that uh, the minute you started playing again, when you played good and you sounded good to yourself, you would less play. You would leave, yeah, you'd split. You know, you'd say, well, I'm cured and I'll split. For some reason or other, when I got there, as soon as I was able to stand up, which was <laughs> with a few weeks at least, uh, I began playing. And uh, I like to think that it was something that, that uh, rather than causing me to leave, it kept, it kind of kept me there because uh, playing was the one thing that I was familiar with that I really and were you playing with other musicians? And we had a good band in Cinnamon. You know, we had Art Pepper was there and uh, a fellow named Lou Mallon, another fellow Lou Lollinger, Kenny Powerstein, uh, Greg Dykes, who wrote a, a couple of cantatas that were recorded. Joe Pass there then? Uh, Joe Pass had already left, but and Charlie Hayden had already left. But well, we had a quite a good orchestra, and uh, to this day there are still some good musicians in Cinema that you probably haven't heard from, but we uh, heard of. You know, but we have a, a flute player, saxophone player uh, from Australia named David Scott, who is who's not a drug addict or anything. He just he liked me, and he liked the Cinema lifestyle. He moved in well, five, six, seven years ago, and uh, he became one of my real close friends. And, and we do a lot of playing together, and we've got some young guys that, that are phenomenal musicians. One guy plays about nine instruments, and all very well, so he does a lot of over, overdubbing and makes his own recordings and whatnot. The, the Synonym experience really has pulled you together. Uh, not only are you in good health and playing better than ever, you are now actually working uh, as a administrator for a Houston branch mm -hmm. of Synonym, actually helping other of people who are in trouble. That's um, true. Well, could you talk a little <laughs> bit about what kinds of things you do in the, the Houston branch? What, 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 is, what is your well, title there? Well, I'm the director of the, of the Houston uh, branch of Synanon. And it's a rather small branch, actually, but economically, uh, most of Synanon's funding comes from Houston. Uh, we all work for a living. We don't. We don't get any government funding or anything like that. Uh, we believe that we get a, a day's work for a day's pay, or a day's pay for a day's work. And, and uh, so we have a sales team down there of uh, all about 25 people, uh, plus a few people like myself that work in and out of the house. You know, we have sales salesmen per se that work. Uh, selling advertising gifts and specialties. Uh, they uh, sell everything from briefcases to uh, shaper pens to TV sets to... We have about 50,000 items in our line and uh, we have a catalog that goes out. And we work with some of the biggest companies in the country. We're rated, in that particular business, we're rated about number 11 in the whole country. Uh, there are a few companies that are course much bigger but, but uh, for what we do we do a remarkable job 
and uh, and that helps us keep going. That's that's our main source of income, and that's what keeps Shannon going as far as finances go. Uh, and these people, uh, for the most part, were uh, people like myself that had a drug problem at one time, or a booze problem, or a pill problem, or or were just alienated one way or another that uh, couldn't get along in society. And of course, you know, a salesman has to be able to get along with almost anybody. And so it's a complete reversal of, of what you would normally uh, expect to happen to, a, to an alienated person. All of a sudden they find themselves out uh, on a sales team and they're out confronting presidents of large businesses. Therapy know? and work all at the and, same time. Yeah. Good it's, it's therapy and work at the same time, exactly. And uh, we've developed some really unbelievable salespeople that are that are oh, sharp as a tack and know what they're doing and, and enjoy it and uh, and do good for cinema. And of course, our biggest business is taking care of people. That's uh, that's why we're in existence. We've been doing this for 25 years, and we've had. About 17,000 people have come through Synanon. And people stay for a week. Uh, some people stay for, you know, we suggest that a person with a drug problem or a, you know, any sort of a uh, character disorder problem, as well, because I'll call it just to prove everything under one heading, uh, people should stay for a year, you know, thereabouts. Uh, but, you know, we have no contract or no commitment papers or anything like that. It, person comes in and if they don't like it or they feel they can't make it, uh, they leave after a week or after a night or after two weeks or a month or whatever. But uh, in order to really see any results, you know, it took me, for instance, 20 years to get to the point where I said, wow, I really need some help. You know, something's radically wrong with me. Uh, it's the first time that I had ever admitted that fact to myself, you know. I say, oh, drug addicts, yeah, I know about them, you know, but that's not me. Uh, you know, I, I work for a living, so uh, that's not me. And uh, so it takes about a year to affect any kind of a change in a person. You just can't do it overnight. What changes have you seen in the jazz field as a person that was right in the mecca of jazz in New York City and personally active in a lot of the things going on, and then have a 10-year period where you're isolated from at least New York, what kinds of things have you have you seen uh, change uh, now that you are again active in the jazz field as a player? Um, <coughs> what comments do you have? What new well, people do you see on the scene? Uh, just in generalities, I I have been amazed just the last three days to see uh, the caliber of young players. It's they're scary, unbelievable. Isn't it? I don't know where they're going to yeah. go, man. Right. I don't know what they're going to do. Well, I thought a lot about that the last couple of days because. Uh, I came down, you know, to Kansas City here with with a group from Houston, uh, players that, that average about 14 years old each, and uh, they and have they, Yeah, and they they uh, they're you know more than infants musically. Uh, in fact, it's one of the best school bands I've ever played with, and it would put to shame some of the professional groups that I've played with. What's the name of the band? Uh, it's the, it's the uh, HSVPA band led by Dr. Bob Morgan. HSVPA stands for the High School for Visual and Performing Arts, and it's based in Houston. And, uh, you know, they win DBs every year, and they take trips abroad, and they, they just came back from Den Denmark and Finland and Sweden, and last year they were in Switzerland, and 
they travel all over, you know, they're, they're quite a, a well-known group already. And, uh, uh, here's what I was thinking about. Uh, I heard, you know, I, I've worked with those, I've, I've done a, a few concerts with that group, and then I heard these, these kids, uh, the young people's group that won the awards, and I don't know all their names, but but uh, again, you know, the alto player was 11 years old last night. Uh, he was not playing from memory, or he was not playing from rote or anything like that. He, you know, he had the, the concepts down, and uh, I'm sure he could have uh, stood around and, you know, held his own with, with almost anybody on any tune. Uh, I don't think that it was a setup for him to play one song, and, and no. you know, he, he had it he had his act together at 11 years old, you know, he was a thinking musician. And I've been thinking a lot about that because, you know, we keep complaining about, boy, there's no work, you know, and the recording situation is bad, and, you know, whatever. But I think with this gang of kids that's coming up, that it will force work to be created. Uh, it just seems like that's what's got to happen. Uh, something's got to, you know, something has to expand somewhere. Uh, you can't have that many kids that good and not have a place to showcase them. And I think that something, you know, something, a natural, a natural phenomenon has to take place. And I don't know, I have no idea what it will be, but, but, uh, you know, like nature abhors a vacuum. Well, nature also abhors something where, where you have that much talent, you know, ready to burst out and, and, uh, and no place for it to go. You know, I would hate for them all to be cab drivers, you know, and, and give up music. So there's got to be some place for that talent to to be exposed and to be fed and become fertile, you know, nurtured and whatnot. And I think it will happen somehow, and I don't know exactly how, but I've just been thinking about that whole idea the last couple of days, and that's what I think will happen. It's, it's uh, unbelievable. In, in the professional field, what players have really gotten your attention? I guess uh, in the late 50s, early 60s, when you were at the top of your activity, uh, the main forces were still Irby Green and J.J. Johnson and Jimmy Cleveland. And uh, who, who really interests you right now of people that weren't active in those days? Or Well, you know, I, I have to say hello to Billy Watchers, of course. He's uh, he's always fabulous. Um, I would like to hear more of Albert Mangelsdorf. You know, I haven't heard a lot of him, but uh, uh, I know him, and I've we've played together a few times, and I would like to hear a lot more of him. Also, some tapes. Terrific. I would also like to hear this this Swedish fellow. Ayatollah. Yeah. Great. I, I would like to hear more of him. He he really intrigues me. Uh, so we played with this afternoon, uh, Doug, uh, Sir. Doug, Doug Sir, young, young fella, 21 years old, phenomenal trombone player. I wonder about where he's going, you know, he's already got a group and he's 21 years old and he's a terrific player and he's headed in the right direction, you know, by the time he's 25 he should be unbeatable, you know. And, yeah, well, one so. thing that has seemed to have taken place, uh, um, possibly during your period in, in Synanon, is the dependency of trombone players now, or the use of trombone players and other instruments in the microphone. Mm -hmm. Now, if you notice, it seems there's a whole technique in using the mic. Oh, yeah. And um, 
I wonder if, if that's best. What's your feelings on that? I, I find many times uh, the sound is, is considerably distorted, especially on trombone. Mm -hmm. like, um, are you pro or con, or you just feel it's a necessity that you have to have? I think it's a necessity that you have to have these days. Uh, what if no one used the mic up there but the piano? Well, that would be a different story. Then I would then I would go without a mic like we used to do, you know, in days of yore. <laughs> Why not? Everyone's listening to work. Well, uh, you know, here's, here's uh, something interesting. I saw Phil Woods recently who doesn't use a mic. And it sounds great. And boy, it's it's so, so refreshing. It's it's I wonderful. I was upset last night listening to uh, you know the alto madness group with the four altos uh because it, it was so muddy that you couldn't, couldn't really tell what anybody was doing and you know that's a shame and it is you know it's something that's got to be fixed or done away with or whatever i don't think it'll ever be done away with because i think we're in an electronic age and there'll probably be more of it than less of it but but uh it, it makes it easier to play certainly using a microphone you know for the players it's a breeze uh, I know just, you know, having been off the set for a long time, this afternoon I, I was saying, boy, if I have to, you know, play at full volume and do or do everything I want to do, it's it's going to be wearing and tearing, you know, even though it's, it's only a short bit that I did. But, but using the mic, you know, you can play, it makes you that much more flexible. And you don't have to be, uh, exert yourself quite as much. And you, you you're, really, you're really not sure what's coming out, though. No, you're not. That's true. And that's... Yeah. Well, why don't we... Uh, one last question, Frank, unless there's something particularly you want to add. Do you have any suggestions or advice for any... Um, as a person that has had uh, severe problems, has come back to a very vital life, uh, um, a very enriched life, do you have any suggestions or advice for any musicians out there that may be having health problems with alcoholism or drug use or something like that? Who does, what can they do? Well, they can certainly call Synanon, you know, and our number in Texas uh, is, that's a 713 area code, and our number is 957-2980. Uh, and uh, there's lots of literature on Synanon, and there's, uh, uh, if you want to give me a call down there, I'd be happy to, you know, give you all sorts of information about how to come to Synanon, or, uh, you know, you can't just issue a blanket statement and say, you know, if you don't go to cinema, you're going to die. But if you don't go someplace and get help, you're going to be... You're going to get worse. You're going to be dead pretty soon. Yeah. It's uh, it's not a pleasant thought, but that's the truth. And uh, I would be, you know, I would welcome calls from anybody that has a problem of any sort, you know, along those lines. Why, that's what we're in business for. That's what we do. And, uh, uh, you know, you ought to get help right away if you're in that in that situation. That's very very important. I think we got an awful good. lot of good information yeah. on there. I know.